I will read verses 12 through 21, which is our text today, and then I'll pray, and we'll go at it together. The Word of God says this, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention is to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I ask that we would be spared from pretending that this is just business as usual, so to speak. But I plead that as we gather, we would believe that eternity is at stake. We would believe the gravity of what we get the privilege of being a part of in this moment opening up your word, hearing from your Holy Spirit, you shaping our hearts that we might love you more than the world that poisons us and it might empower us to live lives of love, not to escape, but to dive in, in holiness, to see others treasure you with their lives. And so, Father, I just ask, I ask in this very moment, as one dying man to a bunch of dying people, that you would give us hope in you. That you would help us to see where we haven't seen. You would help us to love. And that, God, you would comfort those who are really hurting in these moments. For those who are confused and just battling with misunderstandings or doubts, I ask, oh God, that you would do an amazing healing work in our time here. And that the result would be a unified people to give glory to your name and to spread your fame as long as you give us breath. So please, oh God, we expect you to move for our good and we do expect you to use us for your glory. Work now in our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, this morning, I got a text. 1.39 a.m., okay? It's early. I missed it until this morning at like seven or so. Um, but this text was from 
a guy who serves the youth here very faithfully. His name is Ryan Bell. And he sent me a picture of him and his wife, Kristen, and their little baby girl who has just popped onto the scene. So at 12.35 a.m., little baby girl, Evangeline Sage Bell, uh, arrived 7 pounds, 10 ounces, and they call her Eva, and she is 20 and a quarter inches long. Daddy reports that Eva is happy and cuddly with a full head of hair, spoken like a full, a great first-time daddy who gets to hold that newborn, and he says Kristen is recovering well. So was pretty pumped to see that. We don't get to usually announce babies uh, like this, but I want to take the opportunity because it fit with where we were headed today, and we just want to celebrate that God has provided life once again, and everybody is doing well, and it's a gift from him. Now, as I texted them back to celebrate, um, I said, congrats, the wait is over. Anybody who has ever had a child or walked along someone who was pregnant, it's this just massive sense that when is this baby going to come? You know, it's like, please, massive deliverance. We need some help here. And so I told her the wait is over. And then I said, I had to say this, the journey is now beginning. Uh, is that nice or is that cruel? Should, probably, probably borderline on the cruel side because they need to just enjoy the wait is over. Baby's here. But I began to process that and just also began to celebrate that the same God who preserved this child in the womb and strengthened this couple and allowed there to be no complications and this baby to come out this same God that provided such great grace for that one moment is not going to stop blessing his people. He's going to continue to provide for them everything that they need as that journey not only begins but continues. This is the beauty that we celebrate as we look at 2 Peter. Our God provides but he doesn't just provide for one moment and then say, hey, I hope it goes well for you. Good luck. He says, I provide for you and I stay with you and I constantly give you everything that you need. And so what we want to celebrate is last week or two weeks ago when I preached on the first few verses, we began to see how God provided three things. We saw that in Verse 3, he provided us divine power that's given us everything that we need for life and godliness by changing our hearts from loving sin to wanting to go hard and to love Christ. He does this converting, changing, desire, reorienting work. And that's something that God provides for his people. But he doesn't just leave them alone. It says also in verse 5 how he continues to provide for them so that they might live a godly life, a holy life, a life that continues to grow in faith and in knowledge of Him. But then we also saw in verse 11 that for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He begins, He sustains, and He will get you to the end. This is the provision of our God. Well, today we want to highlight another provision that we see of God in these verses, and this is the main idea that God provides sight 
through his word. God provides sight through his word. And he does this through Peter, the one who is writing this letter. He does this as Peter reminds us three things or gives us three things. One, he reminds us to see. Two, he shows us that we should reproduce sight. And three, that we should read and recite for sight. Now, that sounds very obtuse, abstract, and you'll be like, I don't understand any of that. So that's why we get to spend some time together, okay? <laughs> now, God provides sight through his word. Ultimately, what we will begin to see is that in this passage, God is promising to provide spiritual sight through his word. Let's look at it. We're going to start with how we or how Peter reminds us to see, and therefore we need to be reminded to see. Verse 12, therefore, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So he says, as long as I'm in this body, Jesus has made clear to me I'm going to die and die soon. So as long as I have breath, I'm going to give to you a message. But it's a message of reminder. It's like, I would expect like, okay, give me some new insight. Give me some, some really good nuggets that I can kind of think on. Help me to grow. And here he's saying, no, I'm actually going to tell you what you already know. With my dying breath and my dying life, as I write my last little bit, I'm just going to remind you what you already know. Now, that might seem a little underwhelming, but there's a reason, right? Because we are forgetful. <laughs> are we not? How many of us, how many of us have lost something, left it around, have no idea where I put that, right? Have you ever done that before? Yes, every one of you are guilty. I know you are. <laughs> you've, you've, you've misplaced something. I forgot where I put that. <laughs> Forgetting also takes on some other, you know, what, what happens when you forget? All of a sudden, you can get a little tense, right? Because where is that thing? Where, where'd, I, where'd I put that thing? And... Once you've kind of run the gamut of maybe blaming everyone else in the, around you, right? Anyone that could, could possibly be culpable for this transgression, only to find out, oh yeah, I did that. Have you ever had that, those kind of moments? Yes, you have. <laughs> yes, you have. We all have. We all have. We are a forgetful people. And so, Peter knows, Peter knows that for us to find a strong sense of joy and hope, we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of many times what we already know. My job in these moments is not to necessarily give you new information, but just to remind you of our great God and who he is. He is a great 
provider. But right now, what Peter wants to do is he wants to remind us to see. He wants us to remember to see. Why do I say that? Because he says, verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. First of all, the word therefore means something he's already said impacts everything that he's telling us now. And then he goes on to say, I'm going to remind you of these qualities. What are those qualities? Well, he just told us in verse 5 of chapter 1. So you dive into verse 5, and he says, For this very reason, make every effort, give it all you got, to supplement your faith, with virtue or excellence, that is, what is right and good morally, just add to your faith an upright life. And add to that upright life knowledge, know God, know Him. And add to that knowledge this sense of self-control, this sense of withholding from what is destructive and giving yourself to what is good. And he says, don't just do it once. But be a one who endures in doing that. One who is steadfast, it says. Have self-control regularly. Be steadfast. Be patient with one another. And then would you add to your steadfastness, supplement it with godliness. Godliness is this pursuit of God. It is a pursuit of purity. It is, it is a going hard after God. Make it a hunger of your heart to go after God, he's saying. Make it a never-ending pursuit that you want to know Him. And with godliness, brotherly affection. As you go after God, He will give you an affection for your neighbor. And let that affection, that love, may it turn into action. May it result in love, willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. He begins with faith, he ends in love, and just like he says in the book of Galatians, that's what real faith does. It produces the fruit of love. So these are the qualities he is wanting us to build upon. However, what is foundational? He says in verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with all of these things. And this is what he begins to lay out for us. He wants to remind us, remind us to see because faith is seeing. Let me make sure that we are tracking. In the book of Numbers, it's an Old Testament book, Numbers 21. There's a story. People of Israel, they were bitten by snakes. People of Israel were the people of God. And this was a judgment and God comes to show mercy. And he tells Moses, I want you to make a bronze snake and put it up on a pole and lift it up high. So that, Numbers 21 verse 9, everyone who is bitten, when he sees that serpent, will live. Will be rescued. Anyone who looked upon it would live. And now... Jesus, in John chapter 3, a couple verses right before, one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, John 3, 16. In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he draws our gaze to that story in Numbers 21. And here's what he says. John 3, verse 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, Jesus himself, 
be lifted up in order that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, if you're just reading this, you've never read these stories before ever, what granted life in the book of Numbers? It was what? I'm pointing to my eyes for a reason. Speak. Seeing. Yes, that's right. It was seeing. It was seeing. And now he's saying, just like it took looking upon the serpent to find life, now the Son of Man must be lifted up high. He must die for sinners. And then he just casually doesn't say, look upon him. He says, believe in him and you'll have life. Why is that? Because belief, faith, trusting in God is seeing. It's looking. It's looking. Now you might say, no, why do you mention that? Well, I'm not just like, oh, that's a fancy idea. I just want to kind of bring it out and has nothing to really do with this passage. You know, it's just neat. Okay. No, it's all over this passage. Because look at what he contrasts faith to in verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so what? Nearsighted and blind. Blind and nearsighted. He can't see. It's a picture of no faith. Unbelief. And that unbelief, at least in part, is characterized by what? Forgetting. So when Peter says, I'm here to remind you so that you don't forget what he is saying is, I want you to see Jesus. Meaning, I want you to believe. I want you to trust in him. I want you to know him. Peter is filling up this passage with seeing language. It's even there in verse 16 of our very passage when he talks about Seeing Jesus Christ, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There's a lot of seeing language throughout this text. But although that's physical seeing, in Peter's first letter, he says this, though you have not seen him with your eyes, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you rejoice in him. You believe in him and you rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. I just quoted 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Because seeing is loving. Seeing is rejoicing in God, is loving God, it's believing in God. And this is why Peter quotes regularly in his first letter, Psalm 34, where you might hear, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. It's why the book of Isaiah says, seeing saves. It is seeing with spiritual eyes that Peter wants to remind us to make our primary aim and ambition. It's not just putting on these wonderful qualities, although it is. It is building all of those qualities upon a faith that is given to us by the living God. 
And so I just want to tease out the image just a little bit more because faith is seeing. Seeing is important. Why does he use the image of seeing? Why does he do that? Well, first of all, because it's simple. It's simple. It's not working for God. It's looking upon him. That's faith. It's not what you can do for him. It's looking upon what he has done for you. And now answer my question. If I, you can do it in your heart or mind. It's not necessarily command per se. If I'm looking right here, where am I not looking? At you, right? I can't see anything else. I'm just looking here. One reason why he is encouraging us to look is because when you are looking unto Jesus, you are not looking unto yourself. You are focusing upon the one who satisfies and you are not diving into dismal despair of self-analyzation and a craving for self-esteem and the preoccupation with how you feel, which goes up and down all the time, just like it does for me. We are to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is trying to say, when you were changed, you were not to focus on yourself. It was a turning and a looking unto Jesus. You know how dismal it can be in looking in the mirror, right? You can only do it so long. Even those who really like what they look at, you can only do it so long until you begin to notice, right? Like, wow, I have pimples, or wow, I have wrinkles, or my hair is getting grayer, or I didn't notice there was fat there, or, you know, the list just keeps going. This is why he uses an image of seeing. And he gives us examples all over the created world, just like a mirror. You will grow weary and dissatisfied with one gaze, and you will be fully and fully and more fully satisfied with another gaze. Faith is looking unto Jesus because faith is simple. Also, when you talk about looking, when you talk about seeing Jesus, looking is leaning. If I were to say that child is leaning upon their parents to provide them everything, or that child is looking to their parents to provide them everything. What do I mean by that? I mean that that child, especially the infant, is leaning upon them to provide everything that they need. Looking to them to provide is leaning on them to provide. And this is exactly what it means when he says everything is built upon faith. And I want to remind you of that. Faith is seeing. It's looking. It is, God, you provide everything for me. Apart from you, I can do nothing. You, you are the only source where I can get true life. I need you. And finally, I want to continue to press on this image because it's, 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 not, it's a little more theoretical, a little more abstract. Looking is gazing. Looking is simple. Faith is simple. Looking is leaning. Faith is leaning and depending. Looking is gazing. Gazing. I'm not talking about glancing. I'm talking about gazing. I'm not talking about skimming. I'm talking about studying. 
I'm not talking about perusing casually. I'm talking about prizing affectionately. It is an intense look. It is time with. About a year ago, I went to Times Square. Times Square is information overload. When you get there, you have no idea what to look at. It's just all-encompassing. When something is so complex and so detailed, you like don't know exactly where to look. And there it is. Even though the picture is grainy, it's like, what do I look at first? And when you're there, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I could just look right here at all the people underneath this little Howard Johnson sign and good night, what's going on there? But then they're over here looking at this massive screen and this screen and what's going I mean, it is craziness. And you just look at it and look at it to catch all these different details and you never get it all. Looking is an intense gaze in order to see something that's complex and detailed. But not just detailed or complex. What about something that's larger than life? What about something that's larger than life? Say, the Grand Canyon. What do you do when you look at the Grand Canyon? Have you ever been in those places where you try to look at something and you try to capture it with a picture and the picture just fails? It falls short. It's like, oh, but I missed this part. And oh, the, the colors are not as radiant. Oh, I couldn't capture the wind. And oh, that bird that I loved is flying through. I couldn't quite get it. It looks so far away. And even the panorama things that you try to take, even with these beautiful iPhones, I can never keep it from doing that. And it gets all distorted and everything. The only thing that really captures that is to just gaze at it because of its size. That's why people love the ocean. You just sit and you just look. You just look. This is our God. He is complex and detailed beyond imagination. Study Him. He is larger than anything you could ever conceive of. Gaze at Him. And you know what else? He's not just detailed and complex. He's not just larger than life. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. And when you look at something beautiful, you just can't take your eyes off. He wants you to be captured by his beauty. And that comes from looking at him. And Peter says, therefore, with my dying breath, I want to remind you to look with your eyes at Jesus. Look at him. I want to remind you to see because as you see, you will grow in these qualities that give you life and life to the full. And yet he says in verse 9, if you don't see, if you don't make that your focus and ambition, you will be nearsighted and blind. You will be so overwhelmed with what is right here you will miss all the promises that God gives to you. You'll be so overwhelmed with your deficiencies or the deficiency of others, you will fail to see his lack of deficiency and his perfect beauty and his irreplaceable presence and his constant provision, his inescapable goodness 
you'll miss it. You'll be blind. You'll be nearsighted, failing to see what you should see. And so he says here in verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities, he's already said in verse 8 that it will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful, which means you'll be ineffective and unfruitful if you lack these qualities. You're nearsighted and blind. And here's how he describes in part, the blindness, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. This can be taken in two ways, I think. I think the blindness that Peter wants to emphasize can cut in two ways. It would be a blindness to purpose and a blindness to forgiveness. The first one, a blindness to purpose. He says, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. When Jesus comes in and he rescues the soul, he reorients your heart and your life and he gives you new purpose. He gives you a reason to live. He fills up your job and your marriage and your parenting and your leisure time with him and purpose and significance. Everything is defined by him. And yet, if you forget that you've been cleansed, if you forget that you've been washed and made new, then you live as one who has no purpose. And you give yourself great license to live as you wish. And you don't grow in those qualities of pursuing God and growing in patience and wanting to know Him. You just live for yourself because you have been blinded. Blinded by the world. Blinded by your own cravings, blinded by the hurt or bitterness from others, blinded by suffering, whatever it is, you are not remembering, you are not seeing that you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven of much. You've been cleansed of much. The Christian has been washed. Sin is supposed to grow more and more distasteful because it poisons the soul. You don't want poison to taste good. You want it to sicken you so that you spit it out quickly. And here, God has died that you might be cleansed, that you might not want to give your life anymore to that which poisons. But when you forget you've been cleansed, many times you swim in the wrong poisonous pools. You're blinded to purpose and therefore you don't live for his glory and you walk out of step. I remember I was looking at uh, YouTube and I had in this image these military processionals and so I YouTubed it and there is this picture of uh, they had gathered this unprecedented number of military to march in this massive courtyard, and they were walking in step. I mean, you know how it is when you've seen these pictures of, you know, they are just shoulder to shoulder, and every arm is moving up in precision. Every leg is moving up in precision. You know, the guns are moving in. It is just this beautiful picture of order. And in my mind, I thought, what happens if the guy in the middle decides, forget this. I'm going to go crazy on them, and I'm just going to go, Whoo! and turn around and walk the other direction and I'm going to flail side to side. What would happen? Well, they might get shot. But if that didn't happen, 
It'd be like dominoes more than likely, right? I mean, these people would just start spraying everywhere because their progress is built upon this order and precision of being in step with one another. And having forgotten that you've been washed and clean, that you have a new master, a new boss of the heart is walking. When you forget that, you are walking out of step with what God has called you to walk in. And all of that disorder is what you live in. He says it's nearsighted and blindness. It's unbelief because faith is seeing. Blindness is not believing. It's forgetting that you've been washed and cleansed. But the second way I think that we could be blind is a blindness to forgiveness. How many of you walk around, if you are honest, walk around with guilt? You rehearse more of your failure than you do of God's victory on your behalf. You say things, what, what comes to your mind is not God's victory, how he has overcome the grave, how he has defeated sin, Satan, and death. But you've been blinded. You've been blinded to see his death in your place. You've been blinded by the accusations of the devil when he says you're not loved. Or how could anyone love you with all those glaring failures? If this person isn't pleased with you, how could God be pleased with you? The lies over and over and over. It is a blindness. It is a forgetting of forgiveness. And what happens when you are carrying a burden that you were not meant to carry? A burden of perfection. Friends, I just want to bring to you today, stop carrying the burden of having to be perfect. You can't do it. It's too heavy for you to bear. It's too heavy for you to bear. When Jesus says, be perfect as I am perfect, it was meant to be an illustration that you can't do it. It was meant to be an illustration that that's why Jesus had to come to die in our place. The only perfect one died a death that sinners deserved. He was raised from the dead so that those who are imperfect might find life eternal in the only perfect one, Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. And many of you, although professing that you know Jesus are walking around carrying a burden of perfection because people seem to be against you. You keep hearing things, either internal or external, and it crushes the soul. Your fears become louder than God. Your tears begin to scream you have no hope. Your sins become so great you can't even bear to confess them. You get defensive when anybody might mention anything about sin at all. Because you know how rotten you are inside. But I want to relieve you of a burden. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, He took it all. So that when you are guilty, He looks at you and He says, You're forgiven. Don't carry it around. So if someone is saying something and it's true, hey, it's been paid for. Hate it, run from it, but move on. And if someone says something about you that isn't true, don't forget, you've been cleansed. You are accepted by Jesus. Your relationship is between you and him. You rest there and know that he accepts you, even if others might be against you. Friends, blindness hurts. 
But remembering you've been forgiven, it sets you free. It sets you free. That's why he says, stop looking way too closely in the wrong direction at yourself and look unto Jesus. We need corrective lenses. And we get those from God's word. So Peter says, as long as I have breath, I want to remind you. I want to remind you to see. And he says, I'm going to, verse 15, and I will make every effort. Look at that. It's the exact same phrase that is used in verse 5. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. So you're working hard to grow and looking more like Jesus. You're, looking, you're working hard to look to Jesus more and to grow in life in him. And Peter's saying, I'm not only going to do that, but I'm going to take the same effort in order that you might see. I'm going to take the same effort to reproduce sight because I have seen him and I want him to be seen out here among others. This is disciple making 101. What you have tasted, you give away. And Peter tells us what he's tasted. So in this second point now, Peter is reproducing sight. He's reproducing what he has seen. Helping others see what you have already seen. And look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's trying to dispel these false teachers, which we read about later on in this very same letter. Chapter 3, false teachers were teaching that Jesus was not coming again and that that was a myth. And he is directly contradicting that and saying, we're not following things made up. I saw him with my eyes. I'm an eyewitness. An eyewitness of what? Of his majesty. In verse 17, they might ask, well, when did you see his majesty, his glory? Verse 17, for when he, that is Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, God the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son is a direct quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. And with whom I'm well pleased is a direct quote from Isaiah 42, verse 8, which says, ultimately, Psalm 2, 7, God will have a son who will come and deliver his people. Isaiah 42, God will send a servant who will suffer on behalf of his people that they might be forgiven. Who is that one to come? It's Jesus. And the voice from heaven speaks that down in verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What's he talking about? Especially those of you who've never been to church or looked at the Bible much. Well, he's talking about an instance that we read in Matthew verse seven or Matthew chapter 17. It's sometimes known as the transfiguration. In Matthew 17, first eight verses, we have a more detailed account of what Peter is describing here. And so I'm just going to walk through it with you. Matthew 17, he says this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. Those were the inmost three. There were 12 followers of Jesus, but three that were kind of the leaders among the leaders, so to speak. And he led them up upon a high mountain 
by themselves. In verse 2, and Jesus was transfigured before him. A door was cracked open of his glory. Jesus, completely God, completely man, in his humility, he walked around showing off his manness, opening up a little bit of his godness, never losing any of them, always completely having all of them, but here was unique. He was transfigured. His glory seen in a way like it had not been seen before. And it says in verse 2, And he was transfigured before him, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter, the author of our letter, Peter speaks up and is like, Lord, Lord, it's like, I don't know what to do here, so I'm going to talk. Lord, it's good that we're here, right? If you wish, I'll make you three tents, okay? One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he's still speaking, it says, a bright cloud comes, overshadows him, and he hears a voice from heaven that says, that's my beloved son. The one that you're staring at, that's my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him, and Peter falls. No, 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 Peter, you don't get it. Now is not your time to work for me. Now is your time to see me in all of my glory. And yet, Peter's response was right. When sinful humanity beholds glory, they fall. They fall. Because we should not be allowed in the holy presence of God. And yet, look what our Savior does. He walks over to him and it says, and Jesus came and he touched him. He touched him while they were down in fear. And he says, get up and don't be afraid. How could sinners look upon the radiant Christ and not be afraid? Because Jesus knew he was going to go to the cross on their behalf and he was going to die the death that they deserved. He was going to be raised three days later so that anyone who would trust in him could be in his presence forever. Peter was allowed to see his majesty. He wanted him to look at him and to behold him. He saw with physical eyes what he longs for us to see with our spiritual eyes. The point of the transfiguration is that when you see Jesus, it clarifies what is true north. The compass of our lives all of a sudden understand the direction to walk. Peter is saying, I want to remind you because this is no myth. I saw him. I saw him. I heard the voice from heaven. This one was glorious in every way. He fulfilled every promise. I saw him. I saw him die. I saw him rise from the dead. I saw him. And what I've seen with physical eyes, I beckon you to look at with spiritual eyes. So that you might know who is true north. There was no doubt when the Savior reached down to touch Peter. There was no doubt what was right. There was no doubt what was true north. There was no doubt what was pure and glorious. There was no doubt what life was all about. It was awe. It was true freedom. And A.W. Tozer says this. Much of our difficulty as seeking Christians, 
stems from our unwillingness to take God as he is and adjust our lives accordingly. We insist upon trying to modify him and to bring him nearer to our own image. It's like running a race and halfway through the race, you go to the judge and say, hey, I think I want to redirect the course. I'd like to make a shortcut here and to get back, okay? Can we do that? No, that's crazy. Peter is saying, I saw what life was about. I'm going to give my life for him. Everything is to revolve around him. It is not me to modify him. It is him to modify me. I must take him as he is in all of his holiness, all of his love, all of his justice, all of his mercy. I've got to take him as he is. He is not to be conformed to our likeness. He is to be admired and loved for his beauty. And A.W. Tozer goes on to speak in his book, The Pursuit of God. Every soul belongs to God and exists by his pleasure. God being who and what he is, and we being who and what we are, the only thinkable relation between us is one of full lordship on his part and complete submission on ours. We owe him every honor that is in our power to give him. And hear this, for this is what strikes many of our souls. Our everlasting grief lies in giving him anything less. The pursuit of God will embrace the labor of bringing our total personality into conformity to his. Peter wants to remind them to look to God and to take him as he is. To say as a prayer, oh God, I want you as you are and I want you to make me as I should be. The happiest and freest person is the one who not only confesses that Jesus alone can forgive us of our sins, but the one who says, I exist that you might be exalted. Let that sit on you. Because A.W. Tozer says, a thousand minor problems are solved when we say that. God I want you to be exalted. The direction of your life changes from self-preservation to God glorification. Love is defined by getting people to God because that's where you and I and they will be the happiest. Everything is redirected and turned upon its head because I want all of you, God, and I want you to make me all that you want me to be. I don't want part of you here, and I want this just part of you, and this just part of you, and then trying to make a God that I can deal with. I want who you are. And Peter, when he was on his face, he saw God and his glory. And Jesus touches him and picks him up and says, don't be afraid. Walk with me. And so Peter today is reminding us to see. And then he is saying, because I saw, I want you to see. I want to give it away. I want to reproduce sight. 
And then we might ask, well, where in the world does sight come from? I want to see. And he tells us it comes from his word. Look at verse 19. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. Reading and reciting for sight. We see clearest in his precious, prophetic, infallible, life-directing word. That's where we see And he says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. What's the more sure? It could be one of two things. We're not exactly sure. It could either be this. More sure is all the Old Testament prophecies have come to us. And now that Peter saw Jesus in all of his glory, and it was confirmed that he was the son of God and the suffering servant, then it only confirms or makes more sure those promises. It is an external confirmation that they are true. The other way to take more sure is that this word is so precious, given to us by God, not by the interpretation of man, that it is more sure than even Peter seeing Jesus with his own eyes. It's more sure. And either one of them holds up how important this book is, how important God's word is. Why? He says, you're going to do well to pay attention to this book because it's like a lamp shining in a dark place. What does a lamp do? It helps you what? It's all over this. It helps you see. The Word of God is a lamp unto darkness. It helps you see what is right. When you are blinded and there's a cloud and a fog, the Word of God, as you settle down into it, it is like a wind by the Spirit that blows the fog away so you can see clearly where to go, what to love, what to say, where to find hope, how to comfort. The Word of God, he says, pay attention to it because it's going to be like a a lamp that shines into the darkness. And he says, pay attention to it until Jesus comes again. That's what it means when it says in verse 19, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Until Jesus comes back, pay attention, study it, look at it. And someone might ask, as false teachers were doing in those days, why should I? It's just somebody's creative thoughts. And he says in verse 20, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Someone didn't just kind of say, huh, I think I might write the Bible today, and boom, okay, let me just make this happen. It's not someone's own creative ideas. Verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. A guy just didn't say, hey, I'm just going to prophesy all these great words now. If they did and it didn't come true, they were stoned in the Old Testament. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But here is one of the clearest statements of how we got the Bible and why the Bible is God's infallible word. But men... Men with all their personalities, men with all their uniquenesses in language and their different writing styles, men spoke from God, God speaking through them. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
These are Holy Spirit-breathed words. Words from God. That's why Timothy says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. And he did that through human instruments. All Scripture is God-breathed. God-initiated. God-crafted. These are God's words. Without error for us to enjoy, for us to see Jesus. And Peter even equates later on in this letter, he equates Paul's letters with Scripture and says, Paul's letters are Scripture. So we have that this book in its entirety, not just Old Testament prophecies, but this book in its entirety is God's breathed word to us. You know something that's interesting? So I was looking at the transfiguration. Do you know how many people he revealed himself to at the transfiguration? Who were they? Peter, James, and John. Three. What's unique about that is what sets apart this word from all of these other potential scriptures, all of these other good religious books out there. Islam says that there was a unique vision given only to one man, Muhammad. Mormonism says there was a unique vision only given to Joseph Smith, one man upon which they were supposed to trust. But what we see in this text, three men saw his glory in an instance. Twelve men walked with him and saw him as undeniably the risen Christ. Paul saw his glory and saw it so clearly that literally it blinded him for three days. Over 500 people witnessed and saw the dead body of Jesus now walking around alive. And over 40 different authors wrote in this book a continuous word without error and without contradiction carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have a more sure word. And this more sure word is how we have faith and hope. This is a more sure word. And so, where in the world are we going to see? You see in this more sure word. And so Peter says, I want to remind you to see me, to see Jesus. I want you to remind you to look. I want you to reproduce what you see. And the only place you will grow in seeing is in this more sure prophetic word, the Bible. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your great and very precious promises in your word. May they be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and may we hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Oh God, I pray that you would come now by your Holy Spirit. And that you would give sight. I pray for those who have never trusted in Jesus. Who've never really understood the degree of their sin. The degree of your holiness. And how the only way we can get to you is not to work for you. Because our work will always fall short. But to trust in Jesus Christ's work in our place. Would you give them eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. And to turn from sin. And to embrace Christ as their only hope. Today, would you give sight to the blind? And Father, I also pray. I pray for those in this place 
whose blindness is at times temporary, it comes and goes, I ask that you would give sight that is a hunger, a longing to look at Jesus, to study him, to gaze upon him and to be captured by his beauty. May we lean upon you and may our simple faith, oh God, may our simple faith be the foundation upon which we build our life and acceptance. And may it result in us loving many, as long as you give us breath, to seeing you and loving you.